Welcome to Insignium Bits, conversations about breakthrough, innovation, and transformation. Now, enough of the soft stuff. I know you're like, well, that was nice and sweet and all, but but what, what about the real impact and relevance of creativity? Well, I have some interesting statistics to share with you. So the first starts with the World Economic Forum. In 2015, the World Economic Forum predicted that creativity would rank as the number 10 job skill for 2020 and beyond. That was in 2015. One year later, in 2016, they said, hang on, actually, we think creativity is going to rank as the number three job skill for 2020 and beyond. And what's interesting is that job skills numbers one and two are critical thinking and problem solving, which P.S., that's creativity. So net-net, creativity is ranking as the number one job skill for 2020 and beyond. Still case, the furniture design company has done some interesting research as well about creativity. They learned that 55% of people want to be more creative in their role, but 19% are pointing to a lack of guidance or permission to be creative. And then 60% of younger people, not us older schmucks like me, I'm a Gen Xer, but centennials and millennials are showing a lot more creative ambition than older workers. And then Fidelity Investments in the financial services industry, they did some research. They learned, again, generationally speaking, that 58% of millennials are ranking the quality of their work environment over financial remuneration when they're considering a job opportunity. And then Degreed Research learned that 46% of people report that they are much more likely to leave an employer if there is not a commitment to upskilling or to reskilling. And this adversely will affect productivity. But a few more statistics, because these were, this data was a little old, this was before the pandemic. Um, in 2020, in the fall of 2020, September 2020, we, we transfer release data that was starting to factor in the effects of the pandemic. And we transfer learned that 61% of people in new jobs are having a lot more creative ideas. Interesting. One of my favorite quips is that creativity loves constraints. So all the constraints that we were starting to feel because of this pandemic, causal, I don't know, had some effect on people's creative ideas. 29% were feeling a lot more creative than usual. And 46% were reflecting on how to achieve purpose and fulfillment in their work. And we must pay attention to these numbers. So here's the first interactive moment. I'd like you to first think quietly to yourself. I'd like you to grab a pen and a piece of paper. Um, you're totally within your rights to wonder, okay, this woman's calling herself a creativity strategist. She keeps throwing around the word creativity. How the heck does she define creativity? I'm getting to that. But first, I'd like to for you to think about what do you think of when you think about creativity? Speculation? Curiosity, imagination, courage, out of the box. Awesome. I love that. The ability, the capacity to change our minds. Yes. So, yes, these are all incredibly important attributes of creativity. One of the things I love about my work as a creativity strategist is I advise leaders and companies on transformation is for me to learn and shift in the ways I've been thinking about creativity. A lot of the time when... I was in the early stages of my company being invited into companies to help them build cultures of innovation. We've got to innovate. The I word. Everyone else is innovating. Um, 
I had the sinking sensation that we were starting at the wrong place. We were talking over each other. We didn't have a lingua franca about innovation. By the way, I define an innovation as an invention converted into scalable value. That value could be social value, financial value, or cultural value. And the conversion factor is creativity. But I couldn't very well go into the hallowed halls of corporate America and say, hey guys, I actually think we need to be starting with creativity. Because they would look at me like I had three heads. Because a lot of time when they were thinking about creativity, they were thinking of musicians, right? Or they might have been thinking about um, visual artists. They had a, had a very idealized vision of a visual artist whiling away the afternoon with sunlight streaming down on this person, right? Or they might have been thinking about dancers, people who are skilled and talented to tell story through movement. And if you also think of art or artists when you think about creativity, absolutely. This is where creativity manifests itself. But if we stop at artists when we think about creativity, then we end up siloing and ghettoizing creativity in the arts. And that's not fair to artists, and it's not beneficial to our society at large. So I spent a few years thinking about this question. How can I offer up a more democratized, accessible way for people to think about creativity? Because I can't critique a system without offering up an alternative way. And what I landed on is this definition of creativity. That creativity is our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and create novel value. And again, that value can be social, financial, cultural value. But it's that toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems that we need more than ever in our work environments. And I wrote all about it in a book that you guys have received today called The Creativity Leap. If I could nerd out a bit, let me share with you some of the backdrop and context of wonder and rigor and creativity. And this is the idea of a chaotic system. And the chaotic is a word that a gentleman named D. Hawk made up. D. Hawk was the very first president of Visa, the credit card company. All of us, most of us, have a Visa credit card in our wallet. And D. Hawk, in the early 60s, had a, he was, you know, soaring. He was on the ascent as a banking financial leader. And he was tasked with leading this newfangled idea of a company that was based on, it was a global company based on the virtual exchange of currency, AKA Visa. He was a big naturalist. He was taking a walk through the woods and he thought, how the heck am I gonna do this? This is such a newfangled idea. What if we could lead Visa in a way that wasn't just represented by a series of boxes and arrows in a traditional org chart? What if the way Visa was designed was much more in the ways that I see around me in nature. And in nature, there's some chaos and there's some order. Now, chaos is not anarchy. Chaos is randomness. And order is not control. Order is structure. It's boundaries. And he did a mashup of the two words. He made up the word K-word. And actually now, there's a whole bunch of academic nerds who have conferences on chaotic systems thinking. So if you really want to get into it, you can join them and read their journal and that sort of thing. I did for, for a little bit when I was getting to this, but chaotic systems thinking rocked my world. It totally helped me to change the way I understood society and systems. Chaotic systems is kind of the thing that cannot be unseen once you see it. So once you learn about chaotic systems, you see 
it in nature. You see it even in this photograph. There's a beautiful order and the way that this forest grows, but there's incredible biodiversity and unique elements to every single tree. It's the ways that our bodies heal. So if you skin your knee, there's not some permission slip linear uh, culture going on to, to, to start the healing process. There's local, self-organized, adaptive, emergent processes at place. Self-organizing, emergent, adaptive systems are all of the attributes of complex systems. This all goes back to chaos theory. And jazz music is an incredible example of a chaotic system at work. So I was really heavily influenced by this as I was figuring out how to give a simple and accessible way for people to think about creativity. So if you think about wonder, that's the chaos or random dimension. If you think about rigor, that is the order dimension. Now, let me delve a little bit further into each of those dimensions of creativity. Wonder is about your ability to dream, to be audacious, to have incredibly big blue sky thinking, to embrace awe, and to pause. It's really hard to wonder when you're going 80 miles an hour. You gotta pause. And the more I started to research wonder, I was really excited that there's some really smart people in history who've given a lot of credence to wonder. So Socrates said that wisdom begins in wonder. And then centuries later, the Jewish theologian and civil rights activist Abraham Heschel wrote that it's wonder rather than doubt, which is the root of all knowledge. So if you want to build your capacity for knowledge, for wisdom, you must design space and time for wonder. Now, another interactive moment. Would you just pause and would you just jot down two people, living or deceased, known to you or someone whose TED Talk you really admire, who you consider to be a wonder mentor, people who really exhibit awe, audacity, pausing, big blue sky thinking, and just jot down those two names. So consistently for me, some of my greatest wonder mentors are children because of their ability to be in awe of the ordinary, to ask really interesting questions, half of which I don't know the answers to. But I'd love to hear from a few of you, who are some of your wonder mentors? Your dad, awesome. Your nephew, nice. Adam Grant, yes. Your son, one more. Bill Bryson. So it's important to have these wonder mentors at hand for when we get too far in the weeds or too far diving into minutia, we need to understand the habits and practices that these people engage in and start to incorporate into our own lives. Now, rigor. Rigor is the dimension of creativity that we typically forsake. A lot of people think that creativity is doing whatever you feel like. Well, not so fast. If any of you have had any type of engagement in the arts, then you are really clear whether you've studied a musical instrument or uh, danced or painted or photography, you know the intense amount of rigor that's required before you can go on to do the fun stuff, right? So rigor is about 
discipline and focus and time on task and skill mastery. And rigor is not particularly sexy and it's often very solitary. So the, sorry, I'm not sure what's going on here, but um, Leonardo da Vinci, the original Renaissance man himself, said that any obstacle can be destroyed through rigor. So wherever we're talking about designing and more creativity into our own personal lives and into our working systems, we must also incorporate rigor, the discipline and focus and skill mastery that is so essential. So I want you to take 20 seconds and I want you to write down two rigor mentors, living or deceased, people you know, people who, from whom you admire from afar. Okay, so I'd love to hear a few examples of your rigor mentors. Mother, Denise Williams, did I get the name? Venus Williams, yes, yes, yes. Sheena. Sheena, yes, absolutely. Sheena. Who else? Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan. Colin Powell, Kobe Bryant. Awesome, 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 right? So we need to understand what are the practices and habits of these people put in place. One of my rigor mentors is the American choreographer and dancer Twyla Tharp, who wrote an incredible book called The Creative Habit, and she famously wrote that before you can think out of the box, you have to start with a box. One of the things that Twyla Tharp does every single morning is she wakes up and she gets into a cab, she lives in Manhattan, and she goes to her dance studio and she incrementally stretches her body. She reverse engineers her body. No matter how cold it is outside, no matter how tired she is, she commits to that reverse engineering of her practice. She, she commits to understanding the boundaries and the discipline so that she can rebound against them. So we cannot forsake the rigor. Um, so what I want you to remember is that creativity is a productivity play. It is absolutely essential for our productivity. It's not this woo-woo nice to have. It is a must-have. Creativity is also fundamental for our well-being. And more of the neuroscience of creativity is demonstrating this. And finally, it's a competency. It's not something that a favored few are good at. We are all hardwired to be creative. It's just a difference of your commitment to building in the space and time. I love the space-time continuum. So building space and designing time for the wonder, and for the rigor. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to, I was listening to a radio program called Radio Times, and they were talking about a group of 10-year-olds, fifth graders, who decided to enter a podcast competition. And, spoiler alert, the kids won. Their podcast did great. And the journalist is interviewing their teacher, who's guiding them through this podcast production. So these little 10-year-olds, they're solidly Gen Zers, they're, they're, they are centennials. And at different points in the interview, there were two words that the teacher used to describe these fifth graders. And the words she used were an anonymity and connection. I thought, that's so interesting. How can you have a group of people who value both being anonymous and being connected at the same time? How does that even work? To my beautiful brain, I didn't get it. But being having the kind of beautiful brain I do have, I started noodling on it. And I created a two-by-two. Two. Now, this is totally a work in progress. But here's how I started thinking about this. High anonymity and high connection. 
The reason why this should matter to you, why this group of 10-year-olds should matter to you, is that in a decade, they'll be, you know, in queue, hopefully, to be some of your employees. And if we don't understand what makes them tick and what they value, if you forsake that, if you assume they just got to fit into the way we work and it's not about what we can learn from them, you're in trouble. So here's what I started to noodle on. The intersection of high anonymity and high connection are two things that I really don't know a lot about, but I just started having random conversations. I was in Portugal two weeks ago, speaking at a conference, and I was on a boat ride. I started talking to people about this just to get their ideas, and someone said the following. They were talking about how much their 11-year-old loves Minecraft and how cool Twitch is, and it's all this huge improvisational space, and it's all about co-creation, and the kids never meet each other, but they're so connected. I was like, wait, what did you just say? Interesting. Which made me think about how might we design these sorts of moments, integrate game design in that way, right now start experimenting with it in the ways that we work. Because high connection and low anonymity uh, is, you know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world. Our daughter is 21 years old. Environmentalism is at the top of what she and her peers care about, as Alan also affirmed. The Black Lives Matter movement, right? That's about high connection and fame. When anonymity and connection go left, when we're talking about isolation and, and fame, we have the Britney Spears conservatorship battle, or we have social media gone awry. And when we have high anonymity and then isolation, that can get a little dark. That's the young men who are part of the incel movement, or it's really toxic Instagram for teen girl culture, uh, where sadly, a lot of the Silicon Valley bros who design Instagram refuse to let their own children use Instagram. So pay attention to what makes these Gen Zers tick, because these are the opportunities for the designing the sorts of workspaces that we have. So I've given some thought about new KPIs to help us flourish. I thought about this in terms of people, processes, and place. So I want to share a few of them with you. Now, as is um, wrote with me, I frame these in terms of questions. So if we think about people and KPIs for flourishing, we need to be thinking about, well, who are we starting to hire and how are we going about the hiring process? How are we connecting internally? What are the rituals that we have? Do we have any rituals? Do our rituals need to be revamped? How are we going about designing teams? And how might technology help us to step away from the laptop and to actually pause? The second dimension of KPIs for Flourish that I've been thinking about has to do with our processes. So what if we could incentivize creativity? What if we could have building moments to incentivize more wonder and more rigor and tie that to our performance review? What if we reframed our business models? As in the example, I thought it was awesome when, when Alan was bringing up the Land O'Lakes CEO, she reframed her business model to really be about, she's not just selling butter, she's about helping to connect to farmers. How do we integrate technology to spark creativity? And what if we normalized play? And in terms of place, physical place, virtual place, how might we redesign the office? How might we redesign our homes? What are the benefits of those blurred boundaries that I referenced on that very first slide? 
And but what are some of the new concerns that we need to be thinking about? And what if sensorial and emotional design became more mainstream, especially in light of this fourth industrial revolution? There are specific mindsets that are absolutely essential to meet these new sorts of KPIs. And they involve three shifts. So now I'm, I'm starting to get to the part of my keynote as I end where I'm going to share some of the how of how we can achieve these new metrics, these new KPIs in order to truly flourish. And I have another framework to share with you. It's called the three eyes. Because I said, it's not enough to tell people to go toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems, and off you go, you're creative. How do you consistently do that? Well, you do that through the three eyes, which are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. So I'm going to go through each one of these eyes and offer up some suggested practical, tactical things that we can start to do. So the first shift that we have to make is a shift away from certainty to curiosity. I'm a board member of a really cool organization called Leadership and Design, and one of the slogans of Leadership and Design is to be more curious than certain. Now, the challenge, of course, for most of us to be more curious than certain is that a lot of us have been question-shamed. A lot of us have had experiences in our learning, in our education, in our careers where we dared to raise our hand and we were either ignored, we were scoffed at, we were kind of laughed at, we were dismissed, and we quickly get the idea, better not do that again. And we, even worse, we may not have curiosity modeled for us among leaders. So we've been talking and hearing a lot about from global leaders about empathy. So for example, Frederick Furtz, who's the chief innovation evangelist at Google, he said back in January of 2021 that empathy is the skill of the future. And I agree with him. I do think empathy is a skill of the future. But I think that there's a step before that. And the step before that, as I mentioned earlier, is curiosity. Before we can empathize with a soul, we must be curious. Why do they do it that way and not our way? How come? Why do they sit over there and not over here with us? Why? If you don't even have the ability to frame the question, you never can walk a mile in someone else's shoes. So curiosity is the currency of the future. Over 30 years ago, Insignium pioneered the field of organizational transformation. Please continue to our library in the episodes page of your podcast tool of choice.